message on Thanksgiving. Um, and so I've called it the Hallelujah Thanksgiving. Comes right out of the passage, and we'll get back to 1 Corinthians 7. You pray for me. It's on singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage. All those things are in chapter 7. So, wow, we'll learn a lot when we get to that. But let's, uh, let's pray and then look into Psalms 111 today. Father, thank you for uh, what a sweet time just to sing to you. What a blessing to remind ourselves of these great biblical truths. Doctrine that tells us who our God is and what he's done for us. Lord, that stirs our heart. It causes us to sing hallelujah. It causes us to rejoice in the goodness of God. Thank you for those who provide such accurate music for us, Lord. Father, we thank you for each and every one that's here. What a joy to see their faces from my view. I love, uh, I love teaching to this group, Lord. I pray you would bless them. Cause your light and grace and mercy to shine upon them. Cause them to know your son. Cause them to know your word, Lord. Bring them great joy from pursuing you, Lord. Father, there are those who can't be here. There are some that their life is coming towards an end. They are not able to go to church anymore. So many of them long to be in church but can't. So Lord, we pray that you would minister to them. Lord, help of those of us that are healthy and ready to go, not to take church for granted, that we would see this as an act of worship, of gathering, Lord. Father, we thank you for Thanksgiving, Lord. Thank you for this great holiday. We know it's tied to our country, the freedoms that they were longing for, and just the gratitude they wanted to express after difficult winters and years here, Lord. We look at it, Lord, to remind us of our great God. And I pray you would be highlighted and glorified as we teach your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis said this, My prayer is that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I'm out of the fight. <laughs> Boy, I like that statement. What's hell going to say when you're out of the fight? Were you a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you mumble your way through Christianity? Did you express your love for Christ in song and word and deed? Was it motivated by the gospel or some kind of legalism that you got tied to? See, when we get saved, God takes us out of Satan's family, out of Satan's team, and makes us part of his. And his goal, Satan's goal now, he knows he's lost you. Think about this. He knows he cannot take you back. God's salvation is so great, there cannot be a loss of salvation because it's something he does through Jesus Christ. But his goal is to make you ineffective. He wants you to be an ineffective worshiper. I think churches across the world, are, some of them are filled with ineffective worshipers. Satan's goal is worship prevention. That's his goal. He wants your mind running even now. He wants your mind going to things that you need to be worrying about. He wants you consumed with your health and wealth. Hmm, sounds like a religion. See, once you're consumed with those things, when you're so worried about whether you're going to survive COVID, you won't be a worshiper. When you're so worried about everything else, the cares of this world... Oh, he wins a great battle. See, these psalms, when you come to these, 
Uh, in fact, there's many psalms that fall into this category of just pure adoration for a God who saves. It is the greatest thing we can be thankful for, is that God has rescued us from our sins. Well, this particular psalm and several that follow behind it, uh, 112 and 113, are psalms that begin and end with the Hebrew word hala, where we get hallelujah from. <laughs> what great psalms. Hallelujah. Starts that way and ends that way. Somebody ought to preach it. I'm going to. There are also acrostic-type poems uh, written. It means after the first phrase of hallelujah to the Lord, they start through 22 lines, all representing starting with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So somebody did some work as God inspired them. They thought deeply about what to say. Psalms 111, as we'll see, focuses on the praise and thanksgiving to God. Psalms 112, acrostic as well, focuses on the godly man, the godly person, the godly woman who loves to praise God for his goodness. Both Psalms follow a beautiful pattern. Psalms 111, it exalts the divine character of God. Psalms 112 highlights the godly person who exalts the character of God and seeks to emulate it, wants to be like God. Oh, what a blessed truth we were to study this week. They encouraged my soul. We don't know who wrote them. They are not titled by anyone. They give a Davidic type of praise to them. But mostly they're marked by someone who loved God, was grateful that God would provide a way, maybe even temporarily here in the Old Testament law, temporarily have this reconciliation with him that they could have a relationship with God. You can see that come out of this writer. And whoever this is, Whoever this is, this person is clearly enraptured and gripped with the glory of God and thanksgiving freely flows out of him. It's a little convicting when you study this stuff, isn't it? I have to spend 8 to 20 hours in this. I have to think, does thanksgiving flow out of you, Scott, so freely? These are good questions that we need to ask ourselves as we go through this. Well, my prayer is that from the instruction of God's word today, that we will just have a glorious, uh, a thanksgiving filled with thinking of God and what he has accomplished for us. I broke down the psalm in five points here, and then we'll finish with the Lord's table. What a great, great Sunday this is. Number one, the wholehearted praise and thanksgiving of the righteous. The wholehearted praise and thanksgiving of the righteous. You'll notice that Tom will use the word of upright. It is the word for righteousness. One who is made just is the idea. If you're not a Christian and you hear Christians speak of themselves as righteous, that is not some legal, uh, legalistic label we put on ourselves. yet it is what God has done for us. He and he alone has made us righteous through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is not just a title. Think about this. It is a standing of the saved. We are the righteous. And so this is why I wrote this point, the wholehearted praise and thanksgiving. There's a wholehearted praise and thanksgiving that comes from the righteous here. 
Notice, as I said earlier, as the psalm starts in verse 1 here, it has this praise to Yahweh. Praise to our Lord. The word hala is hallelujah to the Lord. <laughs> what a great way to start. Hallelujah. We love singing those words. I think we'll sing them many times as Christmas season comes along. But it should flow from us. And and it is this the psalmist, he, he's thinking, before I even start to tell you of the greatness of God that he's put on my heart to pin these words, I just want to say hallelujah. Hallelujah. And we'll see that in the end, he'll close with that. He's striving to get us to, to join him in this. A, a hallelujah like this in the phrasing of this Hebraic phrase, Hebraic phrase here, is calling you, beckoning you to join with the psalmist in praise. So this morning, I want to invite you, just don't be sitting there. Join in. Let your heart, give your whole heart to this now. Give your whole heart to the, to the beauty of a God who loves us. And join this psalmist as he prays. Notice the first phrase that comes, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. After declaring his intention to praise the Lord and inviting others to join him, the psalmist makes this bold proclamation. I give thanks with all my heart. With all of my heart. Notice he desires to give praise with everything he has. He's not holding anything back. He's given everything. Entire heart. Uh, we wouldn't do this, but what if we sent a poll around this morning? <laughs> How many of you praised the Lord with your whole heart for three songs? It was a total of about 15 minutes. But did you praise Him with your whole heart? And maybe, maybe a little further. When's the last time you just flat praise God with everything in you? Let go of all the restrictions. Let go of all the concerns. Let go of all the fears. Let go of all the things that seem to capture us during the day and say, God, you are worthy of my undivided attention. Sometimes we do that in here. I, I, I know I've been enraptured just singing before I preach and all of a sudden, oh, I got to go up there and do something. You just get, it just get caught up in the truth, right? But maybe, maybe for some of us it's at home, a Bible in front of us. Maybe there's a time where you've got to your point where you don't know the answer. You don't know what God is going to do. You're, you're in deep prayer and you're just enraptured in who he is, putting your trust in him. When's the last time you praise God with your whole heart? See, this is what we want. <laughs> and this is why we pray for the core of the church to continue to grow. James Boyce, writing on this passage, said this. He says, if we want people to praise God, we first must praise God. Moms, dads, <laughs> you look down the road to the little ones. If you're not going to worship, why would they? If your whole section is super quiet, <laughs> don't be a quiet section in this group, right? Why are they going to worship? Boyce goes on to say, if we want others to praise God, we must praise him first. If we want them to love God, we must love him too. If we want others to serve God, we must serve him. We must set an example. Spurgeon, right along this line, says this, God cannot be acceptably, acceptably praised 
with a divided heart. Neither should we attempt so to dishonor him. I think Spurgeon nails it. Our hearts are divided sometimes when we come in here, aren't they? What about in your quiet time with the Lord? Are you able to go to him, sit with your Bible on your lap, and maybe for some of you men it's in your pickup truck or your car, at lunch break, where it is, can you set that time and say, God, capture my heart today? I think there's an honesty here, right? I think the psalmist is saying, I praise God because I was at this point able to praise you with all of my heart. Because he, he's human too, right? He's, he's raised, he's, he's, he's living in an ancient world where men maybe made it into their 40s and died. But he's at a point right here, right now, where he says, I praise you with my whole heart. Hmm. I like that. I want to be one who is not divided in heart. One who can give it all to the Lord. Notice the next phrase, it says, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Yashar, yashar is the word for upright. It's the idea of righteousness and justice here. But it's more the idea that he causes one to be righteous and upright before God. In this praise, which flows from this whole heart of this righteous worshiper, notice, is to be done publicly. That doesn't mean there is not great time of private praise. Oh, I love sweet times with the Lord of private praise. But, but this psalm says that it should be done in the company of the upright and in the assembly. God is for our open exaltation of him publicly. He's for it. He's for this gathering. He wants this group to assemble. He wants us to be faithful, to stand up and say, God, you're worthy. This week you're going to assemble around some tables. Some tables will be more difficult than others. Because some of your family saved and some of them not. What will you do? Will you, will you take an opportunity and you'll need to pray about it and be careful and not, not come across as some... Uh, greater than they type of person. But there should be a moment where you want to say, as we assemble, even with my family, God, I want to speak of your truth. See, the word assembly here is not so much a large crowd. It's a word that is used that, that it's with like-minded people or people of family, people that you care about. Last Wednesday, we were in Leviticus 14, and we were speaking about the cleansed leper and the God had prepared a way for this cleansed leper to come. And they would bring him and announce him and proclaim him at the door of the tabernacle to all who looked on were doubtlessly family and friends and people who loved him or her and said, this man, this woman is clean. <laughs> and God made a way for that pronouncement to be made. It was in a, an assembly of people gathered together. Oh, what praise and worship must come from the lips of those who have been healed. And that's all of us. And if you're here today, you go, well, I didn't think I know I was sick. Oh, yeah, you have a death sentence. It's called depravity. And it's taking you to hell. And those of us that have received Jesus Christ have had that death sentence pardoned by Jesus Christ. <laughs> he wiped it out. We were the leper. We were the ones dying who was made healed. And so 
this is the idea of this pronouncement here. So the church is to assemble as the redeemed and with all of our whole hearts, the people of God should love to proclaim the hallelujahs of our God and Savior. Every once in a while, Hayward and I will discuss services and we'll say things like this. It was amazing to hear the saints sing today. Many of them sang from their whole hearts. So we can hear you. We can hear the joy. We can hear the response to truth. And that does our hearts well. Second thought. There's a great pleasure in study, in the study of a God worthy of highest praise. There's a great pleasure in the study of a God worthy of highest praise. Look at verse 2 and 3. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in him. Splendid and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Bodhi Bachman said this. He said, the modern church is producing passionate people filled with empty heads who love Jesus, love a Jesus they don't even know. The heart can't worship what the mind does not understand. Jesus is cool in some circles. But he's not studied. He's, he's not understood. He's not understood that he is God. I don't know how many times I've asked people, do you believe Jesus is God? Just ask them that direct question. Do you believe Jesus is God? It's what separates us from all the religions of the world. He's either God or he's not <laughs> And, and so when somebody doesn't know this Jesus, they often will reply, I didn't know he was God. Now you have a great opportunity there to help them grow in that. But this is where the American church is now. We found a Jesus in a, ge- Jesus, a, Jesus in a genie bottle. We can get what we want from him. Now certainly there are many things that we don't fully understand about God and his infinite wisdom But when we study, we begin to learn. And that's the problem with the so-called Christianity today. They get caught up in the praise of Jesus, but they never delight in the study of his word. And what's worse, they recreated Jesus to fit their personal theology. Oh, the sweetest worship comes out of you when you accept Jesus of the word of God and worship him as God intended him to be worshiped. It's beautiful. Not the psalmist here. He doesn't struggle with this, right? Notice he has such a desire that God would be praised for who he is and what he's done. That's who he is. He he wants God to be known for who he is and what he's done. What a great testimony of ours. Let me tell you about my Savior. I want to tell you who he is, and I want to tell you what he's done. See, that's the gospel, right? Often... As we study these great psalms, there's this great emphasis on God's creative work and the vastness of his creativity. You know, when we study the book of the psalms, there's no greater book on creation outside of Genesis than the book of psalms. There is more study done on, the, on creation in the book of psalms than any other books of the Bible. And so we often find these psalmists just exploding with praise without a Hubble telescope. With no electricity. With no, get this, hold on, it's going to be hard, Discovery Channel. (laughs) 
David in Psalms 8 would look into the stars and see the moon and see that God hung them there and, and fall in absolute worship before God and say, I can't believe you're mindful of me. See, that's creation leading to worship. Exactly why God, why, excuse me, why Satan has attacked creation and brought evolutionary teachings into the world. He's robbing trying to rob God of his glory. Now, for the follower of Christ, the study of the great things which God has done never gets old, does it? See, we delight in it. What's the next text we'll be reading this next morning? Look forward to being in the Bible. You look forward to being involved in Bible studies and you look forward to being preaching because there's a delight for the child of God. There's a delight to know this infinite God. Peter closes out his life as we know it. His last inspired words are, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you think that ends, but then he says, to him be the glory. Now listen to this, both right now, he uses the word now, into the day of eternity. Grow now. You're going to grow all eternity in your understanding of God. He's, he's unfathomable. But we need to be growing now, and there's a delight in the study Dr. MacArthur recently said this. He said, the heart can only go as high in worship as it can go deep in theology. I mean, there's a, there's a ceiling to it, right? And what happens to so many people is they see Jesus as this Jesus in the genie body, bottle. They, they worship him in their own way. And when he doesn't give the return they desire, pretty soon they move on. You know, most of our understanding of theology often comes to our trials it's there where we seek answers from an almighty God. It's there where we begin to ponder, God, you, I know you're perfect in all that you know, do. Why did you allow this to happen? You begin to seek him and know him. And you grow, even in the greatest trials. Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing on this passage, said this, revival begins by awakening sluggish believers. Mere intellectual knowledge comes alive in praise and practice. Some Christians question whether they can claim the name of Christ as they begin to understand the depths of their sinfulness. But this act of humility is a strong sign that God's grace abounds in them. Do you understand what you're saying there? When you study God's word, you're going to come face to face with your mortality, and not only your mortality, but your absolute sinfulness. And you're going to get to that when you study the Bible. It doesn't take very long. You open the Bible and you see this glorious God and then you see this rejection of man to God. And you realize you're a sinner. But it's in those times as you search and begin to realize, oh God, I'm a sinner. And if you would not have saved me, I'd be separated from you that your theology begins to grow. And you become a worshiper. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, splendid and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. His his works speak of his deeds and his power. And both keep the, the worshiper enthralled in him. I mean, think about the, the smallest aspect of his creative power. All done, the smallest thing he does, he's done in creation, is done by the most powerful hand. Such control. We know this is 
all comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Creator. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, For by Him, that's Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. There's, think about the very powerful, mighty hand of God can create something our eyes cannot see. So delicate, so perfectly designed, so balanced so that we don't all die. <laughs> He has accomplished all of this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. God has skillfully designed. Think about it. He has measured and numbered in excellence all his works. We know if our world just shifts a little bit, we either burn up or freeze to death. <laughs> ah, we're billions of years old. Boy, if that were true, we would be dead men. We know the earth is slightly moving at times. I mean, just think about how foolish those statements are, how, how rejection of, of God and all of his creative order that is. But see, not the one who loves the Lord. It's interesting, when you watch man, he's very interested in God's creation. He doesn't understand it. He often doesn't believe that it's God's creation, but he's very interested in it. How many Instagram posts or Facebook stories have you seen? Or how many channels are about the animal world? Or, or all of those creative things that God has done that just captivate us when we watch it. I remember sitting in the duck blind with my boys when they were little and fanning out a wing of a green-winged teal and showing them how one feather changes color as it goes. And their colors man has never been able to recreate just in a feather. I mean, the world marvels at what he has done and then openly rejects him. But people who know Jesus, they're captivated by him. And some are even scientists. <laughs> they, they, they are captivated by them. And we have creation research men and women who are studying creation and giving God the glory. But others reject their own maker. But the theologian worships. And if you're, if you're one who is actively in your Bible as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a theologian. A the, theology, study of God, the study of it, you're a theologian. Are you studying him? Do you still marvel at him? See, the findings of those who study God's word, they result in this comprehensive, unique, personal, and, and corporate expression of thanksgiving of who he is. Alexander McLaren said this, the more we gaze, the more we see. <laughs> the more we gaze into God's word, the more we take God's word and look out to the world and say, oh, what a great God we have. One of the true pleasures of being a Christian parent is reading God's word and then showing them God's word. I don't know how many times on the ranch just teaching the boys, my wife homeschooling them out in the middle of nowhere, but yet having a ranch to go and say, look, God created cattle in their kind, and there's a baby calf. It looks like its mom. It acts like its mom. It has the same genes as its mom, just like God said in the beginning. It is not evolving. It is not changing. Because that would say God is weak. Oh, no, it's a baby calf, just like God told it 
to have. See, there's a great pleasure. Psalm 78, 4 says, We will not conceal them from our children. Talking about the great works of God. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Remember the song, This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings, around me rings the music of the spheres. That author, whoever that was, is looking at our world and our, and our, our, our um, moons and stars and all the spherical things that God has made to bring glory to him. There are Christians that I know of who are scientists who have Psalms 111 written out over their laboratories to remind them of the greatness of God. So look, a Christian's delight and pleasure is in the Lord, and we study that way. And once his spectacular truth has grabbed us, we see it everywhere, don't we? But not the, not the lost world. I just want to take you and remind you of a very familiar passage, Romans 1, what happens. Because somewhere you go, my family or my loved ones or my neighbors or my co-workers don't believe this truth. There's no better place to help us understand what happened to them. Romans chapter 1, and this doesn't mean anybody who falls into this right now cannot be saved. God loves to rescue us from the depth of our sins. Many people have been rescued who would be found in a Romans 1 type of context. But here we begin to, in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now here's a little word that you've got to see and you've got to realize. Against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the God who created the visible and the invisible is against those who suppress the truth about him. Now there's a lot of worlds, wars that have been fought in the world, but this is one you don't want. Man does not realize that God is against him. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 says that they by nature, by nature, are children of wrath. That's where born, sinners were born against God. And these have set themselves against God, and the way they do it is they suppress truth in unrighteousness. They say he's not the creator. They say that's not true. They say Adam and Eve did not be, were not created by God, male and female. They, they reject the very premise of God's family, how he lays out that order, and they reject that he holds all things together, but they can't explain anything else. They just add years. Baba goes on to says, because that which is known about God is evident. And look at this little phrase, little preposition phrase, within them. So they go against what God wrote on their own hearts. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that he wrote the truth on all people's hearts. And it isn't until you lie loud enough and long enough to children do they fight against what God wrote on their heart. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Nobody's going to stand before God and say, well, I, I didn't know. 
Because it starts with God wrote on every human being's heart that there is a God. And there is right and wrong. They are without excuse, the Bible says. And yet this is us. And I know we can look at Romans 1 and we kind of go, those guys, right? But you have to look at Romans 1 and you go, that was me. See, this is what makes you praise. This is what makes you worship. Because he didn't leave us in Romans 1. (laughs) He took us to Romans 3. (laughs) And he justified us. And he made us righteous. In Romans 8, he made us his children, joint heirs with his son. He gave us his spirit. See, you've got to read Romans 1 that way. Otherwise, you just look down on the world. Passage goes on, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they, came, they became futile in their speculations. I've had many conversations from geologists to evolutionists all around, and, and they just can't explain. There's such circular reasoning of their view. And it isn't hard to go, well, so when did you add the next billion onto it? And, and they get into layers and fossil records and all of that. And, it, and when you follow the argument, it's just circular reasoning that comes back around because they already established that that dirt is that age and there's no other talking about it. And then Mount St. Helens happens. <laughs> and trees are petrified. Right? Out in Nevada, there's some petrified trees out there. It was out where we ran cows, and you drive by them, there's a plaque on there. It tells you how many millions of years ago these happened. And they're cut like a saw. <laughs> and you go, well, how did that happen? See, see, it's just suppression of truth. Suppress, suppress, and then the obvious becomes false to them. Oh, not the psalmist here as you turn back. <laughs> not the psalmist. He's, he's overwhelmed. <laughs> he... He knows that God has done these things. He knows God made him righteous. And he knows that to reject these truths, these creation of what God has done is robbery of his glory because he sees the splendor and the majestic work of his hand. God's transformed his heart and his mind. And he sees God's eternal righteousness at the center of all that he does from salvation to judgment. And he trusts God. Notice at the end of verse 3, He says, and his righteousness endures forever. This verse gives us the understanding that God's righteousness has eternally directed not only his creative work, but his arranging of all things. This is his providence. This is his sovereignty. This hour was made for us by God. Every breath you take was arranged by God. That's why he says in Psalms 139 that not a day can be added to what he's already ordained to you. So his children, we just marvel at him, don't we? See, Thanksgiving just starts to flow out of us. Oh, God, thank you. You're in control of my life. Caused me to be a good steward of it. But I praise you for what you've done. Third thought. Remembering the greatness of God results in worship and is the mark of the redeemed. It's the mark of the dream. Look at verse 4. He has, he has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. One of the greatest ways that we honor somebody is we remember them. Right? We have memorial services. We maybe honor them on their birth date, even though they're, they're with the Lord or have passed away. 
We do our best to remember them, but memory of people keeps slipping away, doesn't it? And now, now, as I talk to people who have lost loved ones years ago, they remember the major things and the big events. And even in world history, we find the major events of those persons, but the everyday life of them starts to slip away. We're just human. We're moving on. Our lives are going on. But here I love this because not with God. Here, here the Bible reminds us that he has made his wonders to be remembered. When we think of God this way, and you walk outside your door to head to work tomorrow, or to care for the children, or whatever you have going on, if you'll just stop and, and smell the roses, literally, and look at those veins within the roses, the development, the detail of a rose, it's been a rose since God created it, you will remember his goodness. And so when the world says stop and smell the roses, they have no idea that that should lead you back to God. But it leads us back. See, he's unfathomable, Romans eleven thirty three. Both his, the riches of his wisdom and his knowledge, they're unsearchable, unfathomable are his judgments and all of his ways. Notice back here in this one, the Bible uses this word saw, uh, wonders. This is pala in the Hebrew. It is, is an expression of the great saving acts of God. So now he's moving from the splendor and, and the creative work to the saving work that God has done. And every believer that has been saved remembers now that God laid a plan for my personal salvation through Jesus Christ. We, we are not lumped into a group of people who God just kind of said, well, I'll just take all those. He knew us individually. We're important to him. And the Bible's clear, he planned, he planned our salvation and he granted us faith to believe. It is personal, it is intimate, and it is worshipful, isn't it? The Bible tells us to remember. This word denotes the proclamation of remembrance. In a moment here, we're going to have communion, and that is to remember what Jesus has done for us. I love when people give testimonies. They share testimonies how God saved them. If you're with me and you want to go to lunch with me or dinner with me, many times I'm going to say, hey, how did God save you? I want to hear. I want to hear and I want to worship with you to be reminded of God's saving grace in your life. Now, doubtlessly, we're in the Old Testament here. And, and notice in, in the end of verse 4 here, he says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. These were words that rang in the Israelites' uh, minds all the time. When Moses went on the mountain in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, God put him in the cleft and put his hand over him and passed by him. And when he saw the Lord, he reported what he saw. He said he's a God full of, abounding with compassion and loving kindness. That's how God was marked. Do you read your Bible and come away and say, my God is compassionate and loving kindness? That's the way you should read it. That's the way God has always been presented. This is how the redeemed see him. We, look, we know people see, think God is distant. I, I've, many times I've witnessed people, and they say, well, I just don't believe you can have that kind of relationship you're talking about with this divine being. They're deists, right? They believe there's some kind of higher power out there. There's some kind of deity out there that maybe got the whole thing started. But they don't believe they can have this close relationship with the Almighty. See, but not the redeemed. <laughs> See, we believe. We're, we're still amazed at grace. We're still astounded at love. And that makes us 
full of thanksgiving. Look at verse 5. He has given food to those who fear him, and he will remember his covenant forever. The psalmist here was reminded how God provided for the nation of Israel. And look, these guys were not the funnest people to be around. They complained greatly. But the Bible says there, they never went hungry. The soles of their shoes never wore out. This is a bunch of complainers walking around the desert. The graciousness and compassion of God to feed such people. And God supplies both spiritual and physical nourishment to us, doesn't he? But the worshiper, he sees the goodness of God. David in Psalms 37, 25 says this, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants beg for bread. He knows God takes care of us. I doubt too many of us missed too many meals this week looking at y'all. God's good. And yet, you, I mean, there's some doubtless in here that go, oh, pastor, we're struggling financially. We're, we're, things are hard. And thank you for the basket that, that the church brought and all of that. But God's still meeting your needs. This is what he does. He cares for you. He nourishes you. It's interesting the word food goes beyond um, daily provision. It's actually used for hunting and, and spoils of war. God was providing for the nation of Israel so many different ways. Remember, he said, I'm going to give you homes you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, because I'm going to bring you into my promised land. See, this is a God who keeps his covenant. He's faithful. He was faithful to the nation of Israel when they were faithless. And he provided a way, think about this, even for the nation of Israel, temporary as it was because it was all pointing toward Jesus, he provided a way for people who said, we're going to worship a bull calf, bull calf, not you, God. He forgave them, provided a way for them to sacrifice and be right with him until Jesus came. That's how compassionate he is and how he longs to be with his people. So this covenant-keeping God brought the nation of Israel into the promised land There's an acknowledgement here by this author that God kept his word, that God did his job even when the nation of Israel did not hold their end. See, he's a covenant-keeping God. And you and I, he kept his covenant by sending his son to fulfill the first covenant, keep it perfectly, put an end to that one, and start a new covenant through the grace and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that we fall under. And he's just as faithful to us. Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, just maybe shortly before he dies, he said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Isn't that beautiful? You have a God who won't abandon you. Now, this doesn't give you a free license to go on and sin. This is not grace, grace, I'll just do whatever I want. That should motivate us to be full of thanksgiving that that God, I know I was faithless this week at times. I complained, I murmured. Those are words right out of the Old Testament. Some of the ground swallowed up some of those people. I murmured against you. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for not holding the debt against me. Thank you for taking my sins away in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's so much to be thankful this week. Verse 6, 
He has made known to his people the power of his works. He is giving them the heritage of the nations. God doesn't hide his greatness from his children. In fact, he declares it here. The lost are blind to this, right? Paul's on the way to Damascus. He's got Saul then. He's got a band of guys with him. They're going to go destroy the church in Damascus. That's the goal. Crush the, what was called the way back then, the early church. Crush them. Christ meets him on the road to Damascus. Appears to him in shining glory. You know the Bible says in that text that the men never saw any of that? They heard it, but they never saw it. See, God lets you and I see the glories of Christ. That's why you're here today. That's why most of Ormond Beach and most of the world is out there playing and doing whatever you do on Sundays. See, he let you see his glory, and you're captured by him, and you're here today. I hope that's why you're here. That's why we should be here. You think about the, uh, the Gardenas when Jesus sails against, across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and he comes, and there's this man in the tomb, and he's got chains and ropes on him, and he's got legions of demons in him, and his family in the town has run him off, and they've put him in the tombs, and there he cries at night, and no man can contain him. It's just a terrible, terrible, godless scene. And Jesus shows up. He casts out the demons. They go down to the pigs. Pigs run down the hill. Town comes out and says, please leave. The demon-possessed guy who's now clean and freeze in the boat going, come on, let's go. <laughs> Jesus goes, no, you're going to be a missionary. Go back. See, they didn't see it. The people told them, they said, this is what he did. He took that man that's been there for all those years, that wretched man, and he's made him in his right mind, and he's now sitting there with him. But the, the, the demons went down to those pigs, and they went in the sea, and that's all they could see. First of all, why are they raising pork in a Jewish world? <laughs> a lot of problems there, right? But they, they couldn't see what God had done. You're going to sit around a Thanksgiving table this week and there might be people who can't see what God has done, but they need to hear from you that your eyes are open. And you know who Jesus is. God has always revealed himself to his elect. And you might have been little like me sitting on my mom's side explaining to her that I'm going to hell. I know Jesus has saved me. And, and God just show you the glory of Jesus even as a little one. Or you may be here, one who has been caught in the dregs of the world and God brought you to the end of yourself. Whatever it is, God has showed you his glory and he promises to save you. He promises to be faithful to his covenant through Jesus Christ and he will not fail. He'll bring you through. Fourth, the character of God stimulates our thanksgiving. The character of God stimulates our thanksgiving. Look at verse 7. The works of his hand are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of talk about justice these days. Mm. Our God is perfect in justice. This, this verse, in short, tells you God is absolutely 100% dependable. He will always come to the right decision. 
Truth is not hidden from him. In fact, he owns truth. He is the character. He is truth. He is the standard of truth. And there is no verdict that he hands down or will hand down that will not be perfectly just. And therefore, he can be trusted. And you can trust his word because the Bible says his testimonies of the Lord are sure. Here it tells us the word of God is sure. You think you made the right decision about what you were going to (laughs) do? Yeah, see, God's always sure in everything he does. Spurgeon said he's not some fickle despot commanding one thing one day and another a different day. But his commands remain absolutely unalterable. The necessity of equality uh, is unquestionable. They are excellent and permanently woven, and their reward is eternally secured. That's who God is. Look at verse 8 with me. They are upheld forever and ever, and they are performed in truth and uprighteousness. So God's word is constantly upheld. It it never ends, right? Why are we looking for more? I hear some of my charismatic friends saying, well, I just think God's speaking above his word. Well, so this isn't good enough? I got to hope that that pizza I ate for dinner didn't interfere with what I thought God said. I mean, think about that. See, we have the word of God. It's constant. It's sure. You can go to it. You can know God. You can see him. You can apply that truth to your life. You can apply it to the righteous. The righteous can say, God, I can study God's word. I can go into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I can understand the gift of singleness, and I can understand marriage, and I can understand where you allow divorce and where you don't. I can understand those things. It's not easy, but I know the Bible will show it. That's my prayer as I get into this. (laughs) But that's what God's word does. And so... Man can't nullify God's judgment. One of the things we saw years ago in California is we finally thought we won something, Proposition 8, and it was a proposition that California put out that marriage was between a man and a woman. The ink didn't get dry, and they overturned it. See, not God. God has never overturned Genesis 1. God has never ever turned the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 19. Man cannot nullify it. Verse 9, I've got to hurry. And he has sent redemption to his people. And he has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. I'm careful to elevate characteristics of God. But could we say one of the greatest works of God is the redemption of our souls? I mean, we, we don't want to elevate something to make God greater in one area and le- less in another area. But I think for us as worshipers, isn't the work, the mighty work of God to redeem us the greatest thing he's ever done? Well, I mean, for us and, and for this author here, he, he knows, he knows, he knows his history. He knows the nation of Israel was captive, captive in Egypt and, and held there in bondage and slavery. And, and God had to do this amazing work, a great illustration of salvation as he pulls those people out of there by his power and strength and redeems the people for himself. See, he knows that when he's writing there. He doesn't know of Jesus yet, that name. He knows there's a promised Messiah. He knows there's a kingdom coming. But he knows God has showed he has the power to save. He knows that. And so he says he has sent redemption to his people. 
Brothers and sisters in here, God has sent redemption for you. You are not headed to hell because of the grace of God. He redeemed you. He's purchased you. He's bought you. You belong to him. He's ordained his covenant forever. He'll prove that he can beat all oppression, all injustices, and every form of sin because he's faithful covenant-keeping God. In this last phrase, look at this, holy and awesome is his name. This phrase marks his performance of all he's done. His performance is holy. That means absent of evil, absent of sin, absent of all wrong. Everything God has done, his performance has been holy. Wow. That's a holy God, not some God made of idols or some God that changes minds or some God that gets another universe someday and another universe and so forth and all that. If you do what's right and you make it to the next level, that's not a holy God. The holy God of the Bible makes no mistakes perfect in all that he does. And notice he's awesome. How many of us used that word this week for something? I'm sure I did. There's some really good plays yesterday. That was an awesome throw. But the phrase is really given to God. The Hebrew word speaks of splendor beyond our imagination. It, that word awesome comes from awe. There's a reverential fear of God. There's a, I would say this, there's this jaw-dropping understanding of God. Is your jaw still dropping? Or are you going, Scott, I'm getting hungry. I am hungry too. Last thought. Five, thankfulness creates a love-generated obedience and a growing knowledge of God. See, the fear of the Lord, as he says here in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. See, the fear of the, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This statement is all through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. Steve Lawson said this about this, this verse. He said, this reverential fear of the Lord is the, is the necessary prerequisite for godly wisdom. You don't get godly wisdom if you don't fear God. If you don't have an awe of God. You won't get wisdom. You'll be left to your own. And left to ourselves, we're miserable creatures. Even as saved people, left to ourselves, and we saved and, and we neglect the scriptures to see what the Bible has to say about life and death and marriage and family and children and singleness and all those things, we're fools. But when we come under God in this reverential fear of him, this awe of who he is, he unveils the word to us through the spirit of God, and we believe and we obey. So the Bible teaches that the wisest thing a person can do is grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And it starts with being thankful. And notice he ends this. He says, his hallelujah endures forever. Isn't that beautiful? His hallelujah endures forever. Amen. Father, it's so fun to marvel at you. Thank you for giving us a knowledge of you through Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus became incarnate. He became like us, a man, so we could understand and know you, Lord. We have a direct insight into you now through Jesus. 
We see Jesus full of compassion and love, and we know, Father, you are full of compassion and love. And so, Lord, you are our hallelujah. We're overwhelmed with you. We're amazed at you. We, we love to proclaim your truths, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us not only be proclaimers, but ones who walk in that truth consistently by your grace, by your spirit, through your word. Help us, Lord. We're weak. We're frail. We live in this very fallen world, Lord. So we need your help. But God, constantly bring us back to be students of your word, students of your glory, Lord, to give us strength to finish here well, to run all the way through the tape, Lord, not give up and sit on the sideline. Lord, we want to run right through the tape, so help us to lean on you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.